Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live like Jesus. Well, good morning, those of you who are with us, those of us joining us online, those of us who will access this sermon later. So glad that you could be a part of this. Um, Let me just say this, churches like families, go through different iterations or seasons of their life cycle, right? And families never stay the same. So we celebrated my granddaughter's one-year birthday yesterday. She's nothing like when she was first born. She is not a newborn. Um, Beautiful little baby girl. Is she even here yet? No? Um, Probably back there in in the back room, but but yeah, families don't stay the same. We keep changing. The churches are the same in that, in that manner. Okay, I've actually been at this church through at least six very different congregations. Six very different iterations of, of First Evangelical Free Church, uh, The Journey and Evangelical Free Church, The Journey, Journey Church, Journey Church Tucson, yeah, it's more than just the names and how we, we put out uh, things on social media. I have seen six very different churches. I want to actually rewind to five seasons ago, five churches ago, five iterations ago. And I actually have a photograph of our church from five seasons ago. Wait for it. Here's the church. True story. No, that's not our church dumpster on fire. That's our church on fire 17 years ago. There were personality conflicts, character assassinations, factions, disputes, dissensions. We watched lifelong friendships disintegrate. We watched lifetime members leave the church. It was a dumpster fire. Many, and I, I, when I say many, I mean many, thought that the wisest course of action was to bring buckets of gasoline to the fire. It was a great time to get things off of their chest. And so that's what they did. Only increasing the heat and intensity and the chaos. But right there in the middle of the dumpster fire were a couple of dumpster divers. Men who I salute. Men who I honor, they chose to jump into the burning chaos with buckets of water and attempt to broker peace. They are my heroes. I can just name two of them, just their first names. John was one of them. Larry was the other. True sons of God, what would you give for peace? And I mean peace within Peace in your marriage, peace in your household, peace within your your extended family, peace in your school, peace in your church, peace in your community, peace in your nation. What would you give for peace? Two words that come out of the scriptures in the Hebrew, shalom. And then in the New Testament, irony, irene. And they mean much more than an absence of conflict. These words together really mean a completeness, a fullness, a tranquility, and a harmony. Harmony first and foremost between God and man. Harmony then between man and man, between race and race, group 
and group, people and people, nation and nation, harmony in the marriage, in the home, in churches, and in the world. Where are the dumpster divers today? The peacemakers. Where are the true sons and daughters of God? Because according to Jesus, according to Jesus, the true sons and daughters of God are peacemakers. Matthew 5, 9, blessed, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is beatitude number seven. We are taking uh, the entire rest of the year all the way up to Christmas to unpack Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We've gone through the first six, or, uh, the first six of the Beatitudes. Um, we've looked at the poor in spirit, those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, and now peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So many years ago, on that hillside, Jesus' words could not have been any more countercultural. For him to elevate and esteem those who would work toward and embody peace in this world. Understand that this cut across Roman Greco ideals. It violated them. And you go, well, they're not Greco-Roman, they were Jews. You know that this completely caught them off guard. They believed that Messiah and the Messianic ministry would be a powerful military leader who would literally grind the Roman occupation into a bloody pulp. And yet here is Jesus Messiah elevating the status of peacemakers in this world. Peace. It's the meta narrative of the entire Bible. It is the heart and soul of God's plan of the ages. In fact, there are, are 400 direct, direct references in the Bible to this peace. 400. The earth, we're told in Genesis 1 and 2, was formed and fashioned out of chaos. And in the midst of the earth, God planted a garden. I'm just going to call it a garden of peace. And God is there together with mankind in perfect harmony. While moral chaos erupts through sin and rebellion and peace is violated. And a universal dumpster fire ensues. It is what the Apostle Paul would describe in the book of Romans. As all creation groaning. It is a mess. But God is not caught off guard. He's not caught by surprise. God begins to enact a universal plan for redemption and restoration. Slowly but surely, he would bring peace and harmony back into his universe. We actually live in the midst of this dumpster fire. God has begun his plan and his path of peace in this world. We are in the days between the Garden of Peace and the New Jerusalem. Do you know what that name means? Jerusalem? Possession of peace. Yeah, we're going there. It is God's redemptive plan of the ages and the meta-narrative of the entire 
scriptures. For he is the God of all peace. This is what Gideon called him in Judges chapter 6. When Gideon was speaking with the angel of the Lord and didn't know that it was an angelic being, we think it was probably the second person of the Godhead in a theophany. Uh, He was a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. And Gideon, in that ancient near Middle Eastern hospitality, wanted to prepare a meal for the angel. And what happens as he actually uh, set the, the meal before the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord took his staff and touched it, and it went up in smoke. And that is when Gideon thought, oh no, I have seen God, I am a dead man. Refer back to last week's message. No one can see God and live. And yet, this is what the angel says to him. Peace be to you. Do not fear, you shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. This would continue on in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul would say to his letter to the Thessalonians, he would call God the Lord of peace. Two times in his letter to the Romans, he would call him the God of peace. And then in his second letter to the Corinthian church, he would call him the God of love and peace. And then Isaiah the prophet, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, would make a a messianic prophecy that he would be called the Prince of Peace. The God of all peace and his son, the Prince of Peace, have made a way for peace. The triune God is restoring peace and offering peace today. Furthermore, God is recruiting all true sons and daughters to be his peacemakers in this world. And while it may be dangerous and costly and difficult work, it is highly rewarding. It is blessed and godly work. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's break this down this morning. Blessed are. Before we even talk about what is peacemaking, I want you to understand what will be lost if you do not take God up on this invitation to be true sons and daughters, to be peacemakers in this world. What will be lost? You will lose blessedness. Blessed are present tense today, meaning this is the good life. We all have fantasies of what we want to do in our lives and what what would be a meaningful and, and hopeful and joyful existence. And Jesus says, this is what it is. These are the people that are to be envied, emulated, uh, people that are to be congratulated. They are those who flourish in this lifetime But secondly, there's a future tense verb in here. They shall be called. Sometime in the future, they're going to be recognized and named as something. And what is that something? Sons and daughters of God. The word for sons here is a title of dignity and honor. And the idea here is that for all eternity, they will have this designation, this title, this identity, sons and daughters of God. God will proudly own them as his sons and daughters forever. So what we have here in the Beatitudes, this one included, is what Professor Jonathan Pennington says, that these Beatitudes are grace-based 
wisdom invitations to human flourishing in God's coming kingdom. These peacemakers are those who have taken Jesus' invitation seriously in this world, and they've applied themselves to this matter. They become peacemakers, and consequently, they flourish now and today, and will flourish forever in the kingdom of God. Jesus' idea, I believe, is this. If the triune God, the God of peace, were to ever have real sons and daughters, they would be those who turn out to be just like him. They would carry the family culture, the family genetics, the family traits. The idea is this, if the Christ, the Messiah, the Prince of Peace were ever to have little brothers and sisters, they would be those in this world that turn out to be just like him. The God of all peace, the Prince of Peace, the sons and daughters of God are people of peace. This has been true throughout the history of the people of God, both Old Covenant and New Covenant. In fact, we read a portion of this, Psalm 120, actually we read the whole one, let me just cite a portion, where the psalmist there, we don't know who he is, but he is a man of peace that is passionate about peace, but he lives amongst warmongers. And he says, too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. This heart for peace would remain true throughout the millennia, all the way up to the time of Jesus and beyond. It's Jesus who would say, uh, just a few passages later, a few chapters, or should I say paragraphs after this beatitude, he says in Matthew 5, verse 44 through 45, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. you got to be just like him. This is how the Father treats his enemies. He loves them. Goes on to say, For he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. This is what it means to be like God. To be godly. To be Christ-like to be a little Christ, a follower of Jesus, is to be like the God of all peace that is generous and kind and compassionate even to the people that hate him. A peacemaker. Journey Church, are we peacemakers in this world? What exactly is this peacemaker other than a reflection of the God of all peace and a reflection of the Prince of Peace. Did a little word study. I looked in Strong's Concordance. The word peacemaker is a compound word. You have arene, arene, um, which is, is, is used, uh, interchanged for a shalom. So when, when Old Testament uh, is translated into Greek, uh, whether it was cited by, by uh, the Apostle Paul or Peter or, or translation of the Old Testament into Greek, they're the same word, shalom, irene. Um, the word for make is poio, 
And in Strong's Concordance, um, this word can mean many different things. Because here's the question, can anyone inflict peace? You know, you can lead a horse to water, right? You can offer it, but if you're, if you're adversary does not want to, to make up, you cannot make them have peace with you. So where does that leave us with being peacemakers? So it's found in some of the nuances of this word poio. It means to do or bring forth or commit yourself to, to cause, to work toward, to show or uh, model it. To bear, to keep, to fulfill, or to perform. So we've got a friend in the church named Bill Bontrager that spent a lifetime, well, seemingly a lifetime, several decades at least, in the Christian conciliatory movement, who did a deep dive into this. And the usages of poio in the New Testament and how they're rendered, I think probably in the NIV, he came up with this list of other ways we could even translate peacemaker because I can't really make you do anything you don't want. So here's some of his options. Peace actor, peace bearer, peace bringer, peace committer, peace doer, peace giver, peace offerer, peace performer, peace practicer, peace shower, or peace treater. I can't make you, but I can model it. I can offer it. I can broker it. And that's a peacemaker. The Greek scholar Vincent says this about the word when put together, peacemaker, not as peaceable men, meaning it's not a personality quality. Oh, he's just born such a nice kid. He always wants to be friends with everyone. These are not natural personality-driven qualities. These are supernatural fruit of the Spirit. This is a product of new birth and conversion when God gives you a new nature. So Vincent's saying it's not as peaceable men, but the founders and promoters of peace are meant, who not only keep the peace, but seek to bring men into harmony with others, and I would add, first and foremost, with God. And these are the ones that shall be called sons of God. They are the flourishing, and they will flourish forever. The sons and daughters of the God of all peace are themselves peacemakers. Are you a peacemaker? Are you a peacemaker? Those who grow up and into their new identity, their new adopted spiritual family, as sons and daughters of the God of all peace, and brothers and sisters of the Prince of peace are without exception men and women of peace, which brings us to our bottom line. Hopefully, memorable, hopefully, a little bit sticky, you can fill in the blank that I believe is at the heart of what Jesus would have for us, not only from Matthew 5 9, but throughout the, the entire scriptures. And it is this if I know peace, that is to say, I have it in my heart. There is peace within because there's peace with God. If I know peace, I will show peace. Meaning I will move into to those relationships where I know that we have conflict. 
and I will demonstrate it and offer it. If I know peace, I will show peace, but it doesn't stop there. I will also grow peace. I will be the kind of man that moves towards others in conflict in attempt to grow this harmony, this shalom in the world. So the first question is this, am I certain that I have peace with God? And has this peace with God become real to me in my affections, where I actually believe it to the point where I feel it is true? Because without an internal peace, a knowledge of peace with God, and a peace within, I have no business trying to export it to others. I want you to understand that this bottom line and the way this works is sequential. So if you're trying to dive into dumpsters with others, and yet you've got a raging fire in your own soul, you got a problem. You cannot be an ambassador in that manner until you deal first and foremost with the fires burning in your own heart. That you must be in a place of coming to clarity between you and God first. That it impacts you on the, the affections. And then it moves into your relationships, the people that you have caused conflict with, before you ever jump into a dumpster with someone else. Otherwise, it becomes so dysfunctional. Okay, let's back up and look at this a little bit more. Um, when I know peace with God, I will have peace within. Let's start there. When you know that you know that your sin against your rebellion against a holy God has been satisfied through the blood of Jesus, and you allow that to more and more affect you on a heart level to where it actually feels true. And you know, you can say with the Apostle Paul, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Man, that is a great place to be. And that is the promise of the gospel. Uh, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it was always true. Isaiah 26, 3, you will keep in perfect peace him whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. A promise of internal peace in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant, even more so. Paul would say to the Philippian church, Philippians 4, 7, the peace of God which surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Men and women, peace with God and peace within must come first. But it doesn't stop there. If true sons and daughters have peace within, they will initiate or show peace to others. They will offer it to others. They will, they will move toward those that they have offended, that they have had conflict with. They will move back into those relationships. They'll do what they can in order to mend those relationships. Doesn't mean that it'll work because true reconciliation takes two. You can forgive them and get it off your chest. But to truly reconcile to the point where you have shalom between you, it takes another person. But it doesn't mean that you don't move there first. In fact, Jesus would hem us in in two places. And if you know someone that's ticked you off, you go first. And if you've ticked someone off, you go first. 
so that everyone is in a double bind that names the name Jesus. There should be 200% coverage on conflict in the church. 200% coverage. And why do we have dumpster fires? Why? It's insanity. It's not Christianity. It's not Jesus following. It's nonsense. So Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 23. Same, same chapter, by the way. So if you're offering a gift at the altar and there, remember your brother has something against you? Leave, oh, well, it's his problem. It's his problem. I mean, I don't want to be all sensitive. Man, they got to get over it. They got a problem, they got to come talk to me. Jesus didn't say that. He said, if you remember they have something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Don't come to church. <laughs> you don't want to reconcile, don't come to church. You're in church and you realize, you know, oh wow, I really butchered that. Jesus says, get up and leave. And then come back and if the church service is still going, I'll do my best to keep it going. You come back after you've made peace. That's as, as disruptive as it can get in the midst of a worship service. You're going to go, whoa. I don't, have, I don't have the moral grounds to be here. I need to at least attempt reconciliation. And the writer of Hebrews would say, strive for peace with everyone. Strive, run hard after it is the word in the Greek. And for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then the apostle Paul would say in Romans 12, if possible, so far as it depends on you, there's a part that depends on you. There's a part that does not depend on you. But as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. This applies in our marriages, our households, our, our mother-in-law, father-in-law, whoever that might be, boss, pastor of the church, staff member, um, your kids, your friends, employees, that we should be men and women of peace, that when we either offend them or they offend us, we always go first. We're peacemakers. We want to be reconciled. We want the relationship to get better. So we go in obedience and we offer peace. We attempt to display or show peace to others. Peacemaking begins with us and God, within ourselves, and then within our relationships. But here's the clincher. It doesn't stop there. Real peacemakers, and I don't care what your personality is, you're quiet, you're timid, you're kind, good. It means you're a good Christian. Keep it up. However, if you're going to be a son or daughter of God, or called a son or daughter of God, you are going to be a dumpster diver too. Because peacemaking is not just about me and God and me and my, my spouse or my, my people in my household. When I've got these things down and I see other people struggling, I move toward them. I consider, how might I be a broker of peace in this scenario? And we move into those situations. First and foremost, our agenda is, watch this, the gospel of peace. This is what the Apostle Paul would call it in, in uh, Ephesians 6. And, and feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. 
It is the good news that mankind, their, his greatest problem is not inner turmoil. It is a lack of peace with the Almighty. And until there's peace with the Almighty, there will not be peace in this world. The gospel is that which brings men into fellowship back with one another. The gospel of peace comes first. We are a church that believes more than, and we believe in political issues, absolutely. But first comes the gospel of peace. We are gospelists, if you will, because that is our greatest problem. And if you don't have peace with God, good luck. You might have a flimsy shadow of, of uh, getting along, but it ain't going to last. The gospel comes first. And so peacemakers are evangelists. Oh, they're appropriate evangelists, not the kind that scream on, on street corners. But they understand the power of the gospel to solve man's greatest problems from the heart. We move into the world. Maybe you've heard the slogan or the bumper sticker, no Jesus, like not, no Jesus, no peace. No Jesus, no peace in your heart. Seen that before? It's clever. It's true. We believe that. Knowing Jesus, first and foremost, we move into areas of conflict. Bottom line again, if I know peace, I will show peace and grow peace. Yet there are so many people that claim Christ. And they're a hot mess. They see a raging dumpster fire in the family, the church, the nation. They believe it's best to bring buckets of gasoline. They don't even know what it means to bring buckets of water. They, they light up on Facebook. You remember the last two years? Do you think it helped anyone? Oh, I took a stand for Jesus on Facebook. And you lost 15 friends. And you took a stand. Everyone already knew what you believed. And the problem, the rest of the people that stayed with you are going, yeah, me too. And it's like, okay, you already won them. They already agree. It just didn't work. Social media is a terrible place to think that you're going to be a peacemaker or, or make a stand in that way unless you're extremely wise and winsome and can talk someone into a conversation. And yet there are people that, that just loved the strife and like finally we got to the bottom of it. We disagree. Woo! So we light them up and bring gasoline to the conversation. Sorry, it's not the Sermon on the Mount. We'll, we'll get to truth. That's in this, this message as well. And we'll get to righteousness. It matters. But man, we got to do better at being sons and daughters of the God of all peace. In fact, Proverbs 6 says this about those who are known for causing division. Um, Interesting format in the Hebrew literature, literary device. Six things the Lord hates, seven that he abhors. And what he's doing there, the writer here, Solomon, is saying, hey, there's six really bad things, but the seventh that I'm about to name is worse than all of them. So this is what he says. There exist, there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. 
Haughty eyes, lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that defies his wicked plans, feet that make haste to run, run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies. Those are all really bad, aren't they? But number seven is the worst. One who sows discord among brothers. The antithesis of peacemaker. Don't be that guy. And then um, in the New Testament, the brother of Jesus, he was the bishop of Jerusalem. And in his little epistle, he says this on the other side of what does it look like. Pay attention here. Just listen. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom that comes from above, listen to the godly wisdom and how the descriptors of godly wisdom. It is first pure, uh, then peaceable, it's gentle, it's open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial and it's sincere. And then watch this. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Peacemakers. What are they like? They bring about a harvest of righteousness that they sow in peace. That was the brother of Jesus that said that. If I know peace, I will show peace and I will grow peace. Be a peacemaker. Well, i got a couple more fill-in-the-blanks here before we, we end this morning, and that is for this reason. Because the chance exists that someone is thinking, okay, I think I heard Jim say, go out and be really, really nice. Never talk about controversial things. Be squishy on truth. Be squishy on morality. And that is not what the scripture teaches. So let me just add two, two guardrails, if you will, to what it looks like and means to be a man or woman of peace. First off is this, real peace is righteous peace. Real peace is righteous peace, meaning it does not compromise on truth, it does not compromise on morality. In fact, Psalm 85, verse 10, steadfast love and faithfulness meet, righteousness and peace kiss each other. These are not in tension. These are not at odds. They actually like each other. True peace is a righteous peace. We see another expression or manifestation in the Prince of Peace. In John's Gospel, chapter 1, we are told that Jesus was the fullness of grace and truth. I would say grace is a cousin to peace. And truth is not antithetical to grace or peace. And Jesus, it wasn't 50-50, it was 100%, 100%, completely gracious, completely righteous. No tension, no teeter-totter, 
This is the Prince of Peace. And real peace may have great wisdom and good timing and excellent people skills. Uh, Peacemakers understand how not to throw their pearls before swine or give what is holy to dogs. They understand wisdom and people skills, but they never compromise on righteousness, truth, and justice. They never sweep crime, injustice, or immorality under the rug or turn a blind eye to it. In fact, peacemakers often intensify conflict, not on purpose, but because they are men and women of the truth. And what we discover in this universe is evil is appalled by righteousness. Falsehood abhors the truth, and oppression hates justice. This is why Jesus, the Prince of Peace, could say these words, Matthew 10. Do not think I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. Oh, but he did come to bring peace. What is he saying here? He's saying that in order to get to true peace, you have to go through righteousness. And more often than not, righteousness gets you into more heat and intensity. It's just the truth. So we're not calling for for mealy mouth, squishy, roly-poly, uh, milk-toast Christians. In fact, I would say this, the person who is not willing to disturb and disrupt in the name of Jesus cannot be a true peacemaker. You can't do it. Real peace is a righteous peace. Here's the second fill-in-the-blank. Real peace is a costly peace. It is a costly peace. There is a price tag to jump into burning dumpsters. And the individuals that have done that, and that's their life, they smell a little bit like smoke. They've got wounds and and burn scars to show for it. They have war stories to tell. And yet, peace in this chaotic, violent, immoral world comes at a cost. Think about what it cost Jesus. In the central text in the New Testament, beside the Sermon on the Mount, talking about peace In the power of the cross, Ephesians chapter 2 says, Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Jesus. It cost him his lifeblood. And and the, the text goes on, For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh. Wow, we've got a communion passage. The body of Jesus broken for us, not only to have peace with, with, with God, but to have peace with each other. And I'm going to tell you, the gospel solves every kind of chaos and conflict, including racism. It's done. You only need the gospel. And you move out and you live out the gospel and you offer it. And you live as a peacemaker. Because it says that in his flesh he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. He's broken it down, now live it. And then in his letter to the Colossians, Colossians 1.20, he reconciled to himself all things, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is the price that Jesus already paid to make peace. You go, okay, good, he paid for it. We don't have to. Mm, not so fast. It's a few verses later in Colossians that the Apostle Paul made this statement. He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings 
for your sake. I am suffering. I am paying the cost of something. What is it that he's paying the cost of? He goes on to say, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, meaning he paid the tab for peace, but there's more price to be paid by us to broker peace. Filling up in my flesh that which is lacking of Christ's affections, afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. This is a costly peace. Bill Bontrager uh, said this. this is, I asked for some things from Bill. Um, this actually was from an email that he sent uh, to a few of us a couple weeks back, and I'm just citing it. Bill, thank you for this. He goes, we cannot do it in our existing legal system, but we can offer it through the Matthew 18, 12 through 20 process. And then he says these words. See them on the screen. Therefore, we who call upon Christ as our Lord and Savior must always be first to come to the table of conversation, the last to leave the table, and the most gracious and merciful and loving in our speech. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. I have with me on the platform today one of my favorite books, favorite history books, John Fox. You ever hear of Fox's Book of Martyrs? You should read it. This used to be required discipleship material in, in uh, the church in England. A copy of this and the Holy Scriptures would be chained to the pulpit. And the doors of the church opened because people didn't have their own books. So you could come at any time of day and you could read from the Holy Scriptures or from the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And I have a quick story in here. We, uh, we can't guarantee that this is on the level. Well, we know it's not on the level of Scripture, Okay. This is a man's attempt to research the ancient church all the way up through the Reformation and talk about all the men and women who gave their lives to spread the gospel and to make disciples in Jesus' name. This story comes from 404 AD, and it happened, it was actually after the last Roman triumph over the Goths. And the general was Stilicho, and... Um, but he won the war, but it was the, the, the boy emperor Honorius that actually took the glory. And, and the way they would celebrate is they would throw a, just a raucous party in the city. And all of, of the uh, uh, prisoners of war would be paraded through the city and they'd go to the Colosseum. And then they would have uh, gladia gladiatorial games where good men that were from the same empire, warriors and soldiers, would brutally murder each other for the pleasure of the Christian or Christianized crowd. This is after Constantine. So this is now the empire is declared Christian, and yet they celebrate the victory over the Goths with days on end of grotesque and gory bloodshed for the pleasure of the watching multitude. On this occasion, we read this. The show went on. Many had been slain, and the people, madly excited by the desperate bravery of, bravery of those who continued to fight, 
shouted their applause. But suddenly there was an interruption. A rudely clad, roped figure appeared for a moment among the audience and then boldly leaped down into the arena. He was seen to be a man of rough but imposing presence, bareheaded with sun-browned face. Without hesitating an instant, he advanced upon the two gladiators engaged in life and death struggle and laying his hand on one of them, sternly reproved him for shedding innocent blood and then turning toward the thousands of angry faces ranged around him, called upon them in a solemn, deep-toned voice which resounded through the deep enclosure. These were his words, quote, Do not requit God's mercy in turning away the swords of your enemies by murdering each other, unquote. Angry shouts and cries at once drowned his voice. This is no place for preaching. The old customs of Rome must be observed on gladiators. Thrusting aside the stranger, the gladiators would have again attacked each other, but the man stood between them, holding them apart, and trying in vain to be heard. Sedition! Sedition! Down with him was the cry. And the gladiators, enraged at the interference of an outsider with their chosen vocation, at once stabbed him to death. Stones or whatever missiles came to hand also rained down upon him from the furious people and thus perished in the midst of the arena. Who was he? It goes on to say, his dress showed him to be one of the hermits who vowed themselves to a holy life of prayer and self-denial and who were reverenced by even the thoughtless and combat-loving Romans. The few who knew him told how he had come from the wilds of Asia on pilgrimage to visit the churches and keep his Christmas at Rome. They knew he was a holy man and that his name was Telemachus. His spirit had been stirred by the sight of thousands flocking to see men slaughter one another. And in his simple-hearted zeal, he had tried to convince them of the cruelty and wickedness of their conduct. He had died, but not in vain. His work was accomplished at the moment he was struck down, for the shock of such a sudden death before their eyes turned the hearts of the people. They saw the hideous aspects of the favorite vice to which they had blindly surrendered themselves. And from that day that Telemachus fell dead in the Colosseum, no other fight of gladiators was ever held there. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Men like Telemachus, men like John, men like Larry, and so many more that have discovered the ultimate peace, peace between them and God. It's become real in their heart. They've done what they can to mend relationships around them, but that's not enough. They see chaos. They see conflict. They see violence. They see brokenness. They see divorce. They cannot restrain their passions. They must dive into dumpsters and help others. How about you? This is the life that flourishes. These will be called sons and daughters of God forever. Father, you are the God of all peace. You have begotten sons and daughters You've paid for their adoption through the blood of your only begotten son. Now you are forming them by your Holy Spirit. 
You are conforming them to the image of your son, the Prince of Peace. Oh, Lord, it's our heart's desire that we would understand what this means. Who is in our, in our world? Who's in our, our family? Who is in our, our, our church? Who's in our community that needs a touch? Lord, would you show us in wisdom how to do that? How to be people who are not afraid of righteousness. They, we don't see it as in conflict. We move out with tenderness but firmness. We're also willing to pay the price. Oh, Lord, that we would be called sons and daughters of the Most High God. What an honor. And to flourish, to be blessed. This is our ambition. We love you. May we be your ambassadors here in this place. During our brief stay on this planet, until you bring complete and full shalom back to this place, may you find us faithful. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.